Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing reports of a condition being called mass-associated dry eye and an innovative insulin needle called Droplet Micron. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid. Hello. Sydney Perlmutter. Hi. And Mira Nobusi. Hi. Thanks for joining everyone. So I'm going to start us off today uh, with a discussion of reports of a new condition called mask-associated dry eye that have been coming out of vision care centers in the U.S. and Canada. So dry eye disease on its own is a condition that affects 25 to 35% of the U.S. population, according to some sources that I spoke to. And it presents a soreness, dryness, and irritation of the eye. Um, It it can be uh, quite serious for some people as well. So for some people, it's just a nuisance. Um, For others, it's it's really debilitating and and a big source of, um, of trouble in their lives. So this new subtype of dry eye, which has been abbreviated as MADE, appears to be occurring in individuals who wear face masks for prolonged periods of time. And I spoke to one specialist, Dr. Lyndon Jones, who is a professor in the School of Optometry and Vision Science at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. And he was able to explain the mechanics behind MADE or what they think might be causing this mask-associated dry eye. So he explained that since face masks are designed to limit the outward motion of exhaled air from the nose and mouth in order to limit the spread of SARS-CoV-2, loose-fitting masks, so the masks that don't have those adjustable nose clips, direct the air stream upward over the surface of the eye, acting to evaporate the tear film that coats your eye more rapidly. But it seems there's actually some disagreement between eye specialists, which makes sense considering this condition is so new. I also talked to Dr. Richard Hom. He's the optometric director at Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield, which is a major U.S. uh, health insurer. And he thinks the larger problem with mask wearing uh, is the fact that some masks... Uh, pull down on the cheek and the lower eyelid and actually change your natural blinking movements. So this can also lead to dry eye and Dr. Hom believes it's worse for those who are already suffering from the condition. So this is all important because treating dry eye is big business. In 2020, uh, Allergan's Restasis, a prescription drop used to treat dry eye, had net revenues of $755 million. And that was actually down from over $1 billion in 2019, making it a blockbuster drug. So you might think the emergence of MADE would be a boon for sales of Restasis, but both experts that I interviewed say that while the drug is a good prescription option, uh, treatments are very tailored to the patient, and most cases of non-severe dry eye can actually be um, treated and managed using other means. And when it comes to dry eye, Dr. Hom thinks that there's a bigger risk factor that will affect all of us 
long after mask requirements are lifted. So I'm going to play a clip from an interview that I had with Dr. Hom. You know, uh, the uh, screen time affects you at home and when you're at uh, the mask wearing is willing to go out and about. So it is probably less than eight hours a day that you're wearing a mask when you're at home, especially mm -hmm. for most people who are going to be, you know, and I think the prevalence of, uh, of working at home will be much higher than it was before pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. People will still continue to do that for a variety of reasons. So in, in my opinion, uh, mask will, will, will kind of drop in as a big risk factor. Screen time is definitely going to continue. There's no doubt about it, you know, uh, either in mobile devices or whether it's on a laptop or whether it's a large screen, that does not change. As you heard from the clip, Dr. Hom really thinks that screen time is going to be that long-term risk factor for dry eye. Uh, and that's actually because you're blinking about half as often um, when you're looking at a screen. So um, I don't have the exact numbers actually, but uh, when you're just having a conversation, let's say face-to-face -face with someone, you're blinking a certain number of times per minute. And that goes down to about half when you're focused on reading something, whether it's on your computer or on a tablet or on a smartphone. Uh, and so both the physicians I spoke to actually said that they're seeing um, younger and younger kids as well presenting at the optometrist's office with dry eye, uh, which is alarming because kids spend, you know, of course, quite a bit of time on their, their devices, especially nowadays with, um, with online learning. Uh, so my question for all of you is, what do you think of this mask-associated dry eye? Do you think that this will be a chronic condition that will need to be managed even after the end of the pandemic? I think if you're a glasses wearer, you definitely know, which I think we all are, we know the effects of wearing a mask, especially in the cold outside, and we see that air and we can't see anything mm -hmm. aside mm -hmm. from our foggy glasses. So to me, this this really makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've actually stopped wearing my glasses going outside. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So perhaps there's even other um, issues that could come up in terms of eyesight. Maybe people are like me and have maybe stopped wearing their glasses since I kind of have a low prescription anyway. But I don't know whether or not this will be a long-term issue. I think it's something that is somewhat preventable with the right mask potentially and mm -hmm. with the right eye drops as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but... I've not experienced it yet. I'm I luckily enough I don't have dry eyes to begin with. So I would be curious to see the long-term effects uh, if there are any with people who already do have dry eyes and it would probably like you said be worse for them. Right and what's interesting about that comment you made Sydney um, about wearing your glasses and seeing them fog up uh, is that the two researchers I spoke to really had different um, different views on this. So whereas Dr. Jones uh, said that, you know, the force of that air being blown over the surface of your eye is disrupting that tear film and, and causing it to evaporate more quickly, um, causing, you know, those dry eye symptoms potentially. The other doctor that I spoke to, Dr. Hom, um, actually disagreed with that. He thought that uh, if you're wearing glasses, that actually um, provides a bit of a barrier to this. So the air that's going up, because it's so moist coming out of your nose and mouth, he, he said you're actually super humidifying the air around your eyes, um, which, you know, shouldn't, 
dry them out. Um, so it was interesting to see that kind of disconnect because this is such a new condition uh, that they're seeing in eye care offices. It's interesting to see different um, physicians having different opinions on what might be causing the emergence of um, more patients coming in with these dry eye symptoms. Uh, so it's possible that the glasses are actually protective, at least for people who are having to wear a mask for long periods of time. That is really interesting to, to sort of hear about those two different perspectives from uh, specialists in the field. And I think uh, for me hearing about this, uh, this issue, I think it uh, really sort of um, underscores the importance of having a well-fitting mask. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, especially with, um, you know, the CDC now recommending, you know, having multiple layers in that mask and mm. then having a medical mask and then a cloth mask over it. And then really emphasizing the point that, you know, that first mask or that, fir that first layer um, should be tight fitting, you know, having that nose uh, wire um, tightly secured around your nose. And I mm -hmm. think um, all of this, I, uh, you know, really, like I said, highlights the importance of having your mask fitting really well. And maybe that can mitigate some of these problems that people are experiencing with uh, dry eye potentially. Mm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I wonder if, um, like we've seen in the past, well, we haven't seen in the past, but living in a country that has winter that naturally dries our eyes out. I wonder if the mask is making that worse. Um, mm. like the researcher is saying, because in the past, like walking through the, you know, a snowstorm and your eyes getting dried out because of the right. wind and the negative yeah. degree weather is causing the dry eye. I wonder if masks are making that better or worse because of the humidification that's happening with the glasses. I yeah, don't know. That's, that's a that. good question. And I, yeah. I think that they don't know. Um, I think the problem really comes with this prolonged uh, exposure to having your mask on for a long period of time. Um, at least for, for one of the researchers, Dr. Jones, that's, that's what he's believes is the cause of this. Um, and so as you're describing Mira, when you're yeah walking into the wind, your eyes start to feel mm -hmm. kind of dry, you reach your destination, you maybe have to like blink a few times. I think uh, the problem comes, it's like having that wind um, on, on a daily basis for eight hours a day, mm -hmm. you know, no letting up. And, and Dr. Jones was explaining that that's what's really damaging um, to the tear film. It really disrupts the balance of the tear film. And uh, it, this can be a bit of a vicious cycle of dry eye. So um, once your tear film has an imbalance, uh, it's, it's dry. So there's an inflammatory response often, um, which actually changes the cells that produce the, um, components of your tear film. So that makes your tear film even more likely to be disrupted, which makes your eyes drier. And so the, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. tough. So, um, both physicians actually, um, highlighted the importance of treating whatever the underlying cause of the dry eye is. Uh, and in this case, you know, if it's people having to wear masks for long periods of time, I think that's a really hard thing to address right now because that's definitely an important um, piece of personal protective equipment uh, to prevent the spread of, of um, COVID, right? So yeah. it's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's it for me. Aisha, I understand you have a medical device story to share with us today. So take it away. I do. Thanks, Sarah. So today I'll be talking a bit about 
um, a, a very novel kind of medical device. Um, not so novel in terms of, uh, you know, this device has been around for a while, but really the innovation that's been introduced. Um, so basically, uh, this device is called Droplet Micron, and it's an insulin needle, and it's being touted as, touted as the world's shortest and thinnest insulin injection needle. And, um, you know, for insulin users, um, I think we often overlook the fact that, you know, we think, hey, you know, these people, they have type 1 diabetes, they require insulin, and perhaps they become accustomed to that daily injection. But this is not often the case. When you really start speaking to patients and uh, through a lot of research and data that has been accumulated um, over the past several years, um, the injection experience is very, very important. Um, the experience involves not only you know, the poke and then getting your medication, but really seeing the needle. It's a whole process that begins with seeing the needle, anticipating mm. the needle, um, and then, you know, poking around to find the right injection spot. Um, for example, if a patient might, you know, uh, poke and prod and then, you know, may be around a nerve, you know, that may prompt them to find another area. So it's a whole process um, that can bring about, you know, feelings of anxiety um, and nervousness and things like that. So um, really having that in mind, there's this company called HTL Strefa who has developed this um, short and thin um, insulin injection needle. And really the impetus behind that was uh, to really take into account that patient experience and that injection experience. So to make that um, injection less painful and more comfortable so that patients um, don't have those feelings of anxiety in anticipation of the needle. So the needle is um, 3.5 millimeters and um, in length, and it's 34 um, in terms of its gauge. So Traditional needles, um, they can vary in length between 8 and 12.5 millimeters. Mm. So this is quite significant. Um, and the innovation that they were able to bring, um, scientists and engineers um, at HTL Strefa really worked um, to sort of innovate. You know, I spoke to actually the general manager at HTL Strefa and also uh, director of medical marketing. And it was really incredible how they described, you know, the efforts that were put into really bringing a technology that could allow for a needle to be so short and so thin, but of course, um, being effective in terms of effectively and efficiently delivering the medication at the same time. So not compromising on that by any means. And... Um, so really, this was an unmet need of sorts in the industry is what they were telling me, because um, as I mentioned earlier, not a, people, not a lot of people pay attention to the injection experience. And I think um, it was very refreshing to speak to them because although they were, um, you know, in, in an industry where, you know, obviously business is, is important, but really they highlighted the importance, the importance of patient centricity and really listening to the caregivers and patients and seeing what they want. So um, I just wanted to play a clip for you, uh, for you all in terms of, uh, so I spoke to Anu Rajoa, uh, Rajora, who is actually Director of Medical Marketing at HTL Strefa. And let's take a listen to her comments. Patients are trying very hard to stick to their regimen and their course. 
they're doing their part. They know it's important to take their medications. They're trying to stay on top of everything that they have to do to manage the condition. And the, our feeling is thus, is if they're working so hard at managing their conditions, the technology should help them. It should not inhibit or be a barrier to doing the right thing, which is what they're already doing, taking their medicine injecting their medicine and that was really the essence of bringing micron to the table was or to the market was to show that there can be a technology that will not be a hindrance it's not going to potentially um, help cause that level of anxiety or discomfort and there is something that would be of technology in their camp so as they're remembering to take their dose they know how to take it when to take it how much to take it depending on what they've eaten they don't have to worry about the experience as much so what do you all think about this in terms of, I, mean, I think it's, an, you know, it's incredible that you can merge innovation with uh, a patient-centric approach. And do you think we have enough of that in, in healthcare? Um, I can just think about an example for myself when I go in to uh, get my blood drawn for a yearly exam. I always request a butterfly needle because my <laughs> veins are super thin. Mm -hmm. So um, I know I've been to some labs that have, you know, been hesitant and have refused it. They're, you know for whatever reason. And, you know, as a, a potential patient or as a patient, you know, that would make me feel very sort of um, uncomfortable and, and, and not want to be there, right? But then other labs have been to, they've been very open to giving me that needle and things like that. Um, what have your experiences been? And, and um, you know, we hear a lot about patient-centric approaches in clinical trials or through to drug development and really um, development of different medical products. Um, what are your opinions? How are we faring and uh, how should we, um, or are we moving in the right direction? And what, have, what do you think about that? It's, uh, it's amazing that such an um, innovation has been created, I think, because it's something that people that maybe don't have diabetes don't really think about. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of thinking about, you know, um, the idea that people are getting injected with medication every day. I don't see how this ha innovation hadn't happened sooner. Um, so my question, I have a question. Is there a reason that needles have always been so long or so thick in terms of, you know, administering medication? Is there a higher risk of, you know, not injecting properly if the needle is shorter? Did they talk about anything like that or... So yeah, you're absolutely right. So there has, um, I was speaking to Carl Ward, who was the, the GM at HTL Street Fund. He said that there hasn't been innovation in the field for the past 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah. So really it was an unmet need. And I think it was a combination of um, just a lack of awareness of how, pay, how the injection experience is. And then number two, the technology, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the innovation in the technologies. Um, currently has allowed for the development of this kind of a product. So I think mm -hmm. it's a combination of both, really identifying that need. I th you know, it's taken so long, unfortunately, and then having the technology uh, available now to really, um, you know, have the design where you could develop this thin needle and a very short needle. So... Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's great. I think... To answer your question, you know, companies are getting there in terms of patient centricity and you're right, it's such a big buzzword right now and I think it has been for the past few years, 
But I think you're starting to see this come into practice where, um, you know, drug developers and medical device companies are um, looking more towards patient advisory boards and things like that um, to inform their their development of, of new drugs and new medical products. And uh, it's important. Those are the end users, you're right, of the product. And especially in, in something like type 1 diabetes, where you're right, you're, you're injecting this insulin on a, on a daily basis. It should be as comfortable and an experience as, as we can make it. Um, I wonder if um, you had a chance to, to talk to your interviewee at all about what the, the costs associated with a new needle would look like. So I know like um, insulin supplies can be very expensive with the, um, the finger prick sticks and uh, you know the insulin itself. Wondering how that kind of adds to um, to patients' burden, or you know whether or not such a needle would be covered by um, insurers in the U.S. Yeah, so that was definitely brought up, and this needle, the you know, uh, the way they've marketed and the design has allowed for them for them to be cost effective, and they are mm. covered by most insurance companies in the U.S. Mm. So they were very aware um, when designing this needle that it needs to, um, you know not be too expensive and, you know, not be, not deter patients from um, accessing the needles. And interestingly, the top two um, factors that determine compliance um, with daily insulin injections uh, are actually, number one, the injection experience, so the pain associated with that, and number two is the cost, uh, Mm. exactly how you said, Sarah. So these are two very important factors, and they took both into consideration when developing uh, this device. Mm. I think it's so surprising that there hadn't been any innovation in 20 years, especially since type 1 diabetes is pretty common and it has a lot of, you know, we're pretty educated on it um, in terms of uh, illnesses. Um, and it's interesting, uh, like it's it's a really amazing innovation and I think um, it's going to help a lot of people. I think where the innovation is still lacking and fairly enough is in the fields of rare illnesses mm-hmm. where the demand yeah. isn't as high. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's, and that also has to do with just, there's no cures yet. There's no treatments yet. Um, but if we got to start somewhere and I think this is a great place to start if it's helping a lot of people. And I also had a question for you. I was wondering uh, if this needle has other applications, if it can maybe be used um for for other, for injecting other medications. Yeah, so that's the question that I actually asked um, my interviewees, and that's in the pipeline. So, you know, first and foremost, this was the the aim or sort of the, the goal um, behind um, make, creating this needle for insulin injections. However, you know, this technology can definitely be leveraged and um, used for other applications, and they were telling me how they have other um things in their pipeline, which they're looking at. I mean, we could see this for blood draws, you know, for example, um, you know, cancer patients who come into uh, cancer institutes and need to uh, get regular blood draws. So Mm. that's something that uh, it could be extended to something like that. And I think the possibilities are endless. And it's uh, very exciting, definitely, that the technology um, is now there for to be able to create and develop uh, these kinds of devices that really take the patient experience um, into account and are coming from that perspective. 
as a person myself who's afraid of needles, I wonder what um, if you have the stats of people that um, have diabetes and have trigger points to needles. So this would be like some sort of um, innovation in helping them be able to, you know, physically be able to inject themselves. Yeah, I don't um, have any data on that no. uh, on hand, but I'm sure, you know, there there should be research out there just to see sort of um, trigger points in terms of pain uh, mm-hmm. sensations. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not too sure about that, but I'm no. pretty sure if we look, uh, we might be able to find some data. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying before too, Aisha, that uh, maybe among the industry and the general public, there's this idea of, uh, oh, if someone has a chronic illness that requires them to inject themselves every day, they're probably used to it after a few years of that. And I think um, this innovation really disproves that idea. Uh, maybe you never get used to it. And and the fact that you have that um, response to, you know, pulling out the needle, that anticipation I guess, response of having to inject yourself really just goes to show that there's uh, these hidden areas of, um, of medicine that you wouldn't think of unless that's you having to do that or you're a caregiver for someone that, that has to be injected on a daily basis. Those little things that, um, that we need to listen to for sure. Uh, I do, I have another question for you actually as well. I don't know, um, the people you interviewed, did they say anything about how they felt about entering such a crowded market? There's, you know, so much competition within the diabetes space. Are they really just banking on that point of differentiation with, with the needle being, um, of a smaller gauge and shorter? Definitely. So they are quite confident, um, you know, Hmm. despite being a crowded market, they are very confident in the product. Um, They're very confident where they're coming from. Um, They're coming from a place of empathy. They're coming from a place of patient centricity. And these, you know, uh, uh, Carl Ward, he actually was saying that, you know, if you, um, I think he was saying, if you come at it from or do the right, or you just do the right thing, everything will fall into place. Hmm. So if you have, I thought that, I thought that was very refreshing and interesting from a business perspective, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, we we're doing this for the patients. Um, we're doing the right thing and they're confident that everything else will fall into place. So, you know, sh- uh, the needle people will try it out for themselves. And the other thing is that um, patients can go to their pharmacists and their pharmacists can actually switch them over to needles. So they're engaging different mm. stakeholders um, from caregivers to pharmacists to uh, physicians um, and really educating them about the device and really to pass on to their patients. And they, they're very confident that the, the device will speak for itself. Mm. That's great. Yeah, I think the education piece of this is huge. And like you say, engaging all of the people in in this chain. Definitely. Okay, well, uh, that's the end of this episode of the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. 
Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.